and welcome to Talk Cycles, a monthly meander through contemporary animation. I'm one of your hosts, Jane. I'm your other host, Nero. And welcome back. We are once again aboard the Infinity Train uh, with book three. Uh, what is what is book three's title again? It is The Cult of the Conductor. That's right. And this is a season of television that... Um, Oh boy, it goes uh, places. It swings for the fences. It goes hard in the paint. One might say, um, "I on you know I I I know I am not precious about super precious about a lot of spoilers for a lot of things. I don't really care that much if I know things. Um, I used to be I used to be the kind of person who would go on like a media blackout." And and not wanting to see anything, but as well, it's like, well, you got to see it in a, in its context, right? Like, it it doesn't matter if you see it outside of context on Twitter or whatever. It it won't ruin the moment for you if you know it's coming. And I know a few things about in most seasons of Infinity Train. I actually didn't know anything about the first season. Everything I knew was from the second two. And the th- the one thing I know. The one thing I knew from this season was the really fucked up ending. What I didn't know is everything else. Yeah, in a vacuum, you see uh, a teenage boy getting melted into a pile of slag, and you're like, wow, that's fucked up. His skull, ex- like, crumbles to dust on fully on screen. Oh, yeah, like, his skin, like, sloughs off. It's It's pretty scary. Um, and you take that in a vacuum and you're like, oh, wow, that's really fucked up. But when you actually watch the show, it's still really fucked up. But also, fuck Simon. <laughs> yeah, so I guess what we're going to do first, before we get into the specifics of uh, why fuck Simon, is we're going to recap kind of the, the general story of this season, which shouldn't take too long. Infinity Train seasons are very short, uh, both in episode length and um episode count yes um so we'll just get that kicked off right here uh we start with the musical car and this if you really wanted to to set the tone of a season starring the leaders of the apex well this is kind of the best possible way to do it now if you remember from book two the apex uh so lake and jesse ran into the mall car and they found that group of kids being led by those two older teens, Simon and Grace, and they believe in the true conductor, quote-unquote, who we know, of course, is Amelia. Um, They believe 1-1 is the false conductor and is leading everybody to uh, the wrong end. They, they, They believe that the higher your number is, the better, because number go up equals good. Um, and they also believe that the train, broadly, is not a punishment, not a way for you to grow as a person. No, the train is their Valhalla. This is their gift, their reward for being the best. Uh, they get to uh, have this wondrous playground full of every type of toy you can imagine, and it's all for them. And they, it is up to them to take it for themselves. It's their, it's not just their right, but it's their responsibility to take it for themselves. And, well, when you have an ideology that is that 
self-centered. And when you compound that with the fact that because of the way they feel, they feel like all of the denizens of the train, the creations of the train, the sentient beings who live there, are just toys for them to play with and discard as they, they see fit, well, you start to run into problems. The, the only raid we saw in book two, I mean, obviously we saw the way they treated Lake and Alan Dracula in, in book two, which was very poorly, but we didn't really see one of their normal raids. We saw them kind of burning down the carnival car and then them encountering that weird cube car with the, the thingamawetsit in it. And like, you can't really cause a lot of carnage in a car like that, but... um. Man, they really fuck these, like, living theater masks and shit up, huh? Oh, yeah. Like, they... Okay. The opening scene of this of this season is that a song in a musical about empathy and having empathy for people is playing in the background while the Apex get ready for a raid, they bust open the door, they run in on this little musical number about having empathy and being nice to people, and they murder everybody in the car. The only two people who survive this experience are one of the two comedy tragedy masks. It's the tragedy mask, naturally. And the severed head off of one of the spotlights uh who is alive and continues to be alive as his head is kidnapped and taken back to the mall car as a trophy yeah and so we kind of see grace and simon our two protagonists for the most part quote-unquote protagonists yeah and, and you know working together in their element they've done this a thousand times before right they're perfectly in sync. They they perfectly trust each other. But at the same time, their styles of leadership are very different. This is true. This is true. Grace is much more, uh, like, she's a lot more laid back. And she's also much more, like, emotionally, like, attached to the other Apex kids. She's much more nurturing of them and uh, trying to be kind to them. Whereas Simon kind of likes to play soldier. He's like the commander kind of guy. He gives orders. He points people around and does that sort of thing. And you see them definitely butt heads. Even in this episode, they butt heads a little bit. Um, and Simon definitely has quite a lot of envy and uh, resentment in his heart uh every time they do anything it's just like oh let me check your number i want to see if my number's higher now and it's like every time he's disappointed so uh, yeah the these two eh, these two have a whole situation going on there's definitely also like some amount of unrequited chemistry going on here where Simon definitely has some feelings for Grace, who doesn't appear to really reciprocate those feelings in any way, other than just, like, using them to kind of manipulate him slightly and, and make him do the things that she wants him to do. Yeah, there's there's some romantic tension going on here. It, it is worth noting that Grace and Simon are definitely the oldest protagonists we've had so far, roughly 16, 17, somewhere in that general vicinity um i think 
yep, the protagonist protagonists of book four might be older, but I'm not sure. I think they might be like extremely late teens, early twenties, maybe. But I don't don't quote me on that. I don't actually know. But yeah, so we we kind of get a, a vibe of the the deal with Apex, and the second half of this episode is all about them raiding a very familiar car uh, from all the way back in book one. The really fucked up, like unfinished car where shapes are weird and there's jelly everywhere and there's a bunch of turtles all over the place, right? Which was, if we will remember, uh, that car was a side effect of Amelia's quest to like recreate her old life and her old and her old like her dead husband within the train's systems. That thing was like a big old snarled bit of intentions that just kind of plopped out there. Exactly, exactly. And they they go and they start raiding this car, you know, terrorizing the populace, running it on people while they're eating dinner, just just causing a general bit of mayhem here. But then there's some weird happens. There's like a pulse, like a green wave goes over the washes over the car and gravity gets all fucky. Uh, the car starts moving. It's it's getting ejected. Uh, so Grace has all the kids run back to the mall car, but Simon ends up getting trapped under some rubble and she has to try to, you know, save him and get him out of there. And they do manage to get out. And there's one thing uh, very particular that I noticed when we were watching this episode that uh, that really kind of stuck out to me, which is that even now, even at this early portion of the season, Grace shows some underlying empathy in her heart. Because when she is uh, using the harpoon pack to get her and Simon out of the car at the last minute... There's uh there's a little like child turtle like right between her and uh and the door and she like slides her and Simon out of the way instinctually instead of just plowing straight through a child. So like you know, despite everything, there's still like a kernel of a good person in there somewhere. And this leads to them being trapped Far, far away from the rest of Apex, 47 cars away, in fact, Grace loses her harpoon pack and and a lot of her supplies, leaving Simon the only one. And these harpoons, I forget, we we saw them in book two, but they're like these, I don't know, I don't know what they like actually are, but they're very cool. Yeah, they appear to be just sort of like magnet rods that you like shoot out and they like fly over and stick to the outside of the train. Uh, similar to like Simon also has like magnet boots that seem to stick to everything, um, which is interesting because it sort of plays on the fact that um, even within the cars themselves, everything is kind of technically metal because, of course, everything inside of the car is kind of a hologram ish. Kind of. Yeah. So this brings us to the second episode, the jungle car, which was sort of where the main. Uh, the main conflict is introduced because it's not actually the the apex is so far away. The actual main conflict is that they encounter a child in the jungle car. They do. They encounter a little girl and her name is Hazel. Now, Hazel is very interesting for several reasons to them. So first and foremost, Hazel uh, is a passenger with a broken number. Her number on her hand is is scrawled on there, but it doesn't change and it doesn't glow. So something is deeply wrong there. 
Um, the other thing they find very interesting about Hazel is the fact that she is very attached to one of the denizens. In fact, she basically has a surrogate mom in this big purple brass instrument clad gorilla named Tuba. Uh, and she's very nice and she does not like Simon or Grace at all, uh, which is good instincts. Yeah. Um, now that we've met all of our central cast, I want to briefly hit on some of their voice actors, right? Because now we're, we're all here. Um, first note I would like to hit, what perhaps the most interesting thing about the central cast is that Hazel's voice actor, Isabella Abiera, is a child. Yes. Like, a, like an actual child. Yes. And honestly, one of the best child uh, performances that I have heard in quite a long time. Uh, her performance is great. Uh, she has a lot of kidisms that are really, really cute. Um, like it's it's a very believable performance. It's full of it's full of energy. It's full of emotion. Um, even when she's like subdued, it feels very like it. Fe- it feels very real. Like I don't. Know, she she does a really 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 good job. So moving on to Grace and Simon. Grace is voiced by Kirby Howell Baptiste, who has been all over the place. She has been in. Movies, television, voice acting roles, sketch comedy, uh, just all over the place. She puts in a very solid performance. For sure, for sure. I think uh, the performance is is honestly great. I specifically want to shout out that she was Death of the Endless in the Sandman Netflix show, and she is Simone on The Good Place. She does a phenomenal job in both of those roles, too. Kyle McCarley voices Simon, uh, and he is... A, a hardcore anime and video games dub guy. He's had a few roles in a couple of other things, but for the most part, he is an anime dub guy. He is he is all over the dang place. Um, notably, he was the center of of a really shitty Crunchyroll labor labor dispute. Some of you who like Bob Psycho One Hundred probably heard that he was. Uh, removed from the third season after he offered to work the third season non-union if they would renegotiate a contract with, you know, SAG-AFTRA. Or not even renegotiate a contract, just, like, sit down and discuss future contract possibilities with SAG-AFTRA. And instead, Crunchyroll fired him, and his replacement has not been credited. Yeah, we love the animation industry. It's great. It's really healthy everywhere, and there's no problems. Just remember, Crunchyroll uh, now controls almost all anime localization, because they bought Funimation. Yay! I love the future. We love Monopolies. And finally... Tuba is voiced by Diane Delano, probably the most experienced actor here in this season because she has been acting since 1983. Um, she is a, a a very seasoned character actor. She is in the 2006 Nicolas Cage Wicker Man, unfortunately. Um, and she and Grace's voice actress have actually worked together before in the 2004 Coen Brothers movie, The Lady Killers. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, but yes, uh, what is, what does our intrepid cast get up to, uh, once they've actually met? Well, there's immediately 
the instinct that Simon has to say, we should kill the Null. And Grace <laughs> says, few problems with this. One, one tube is very large, and two, the connection is very strong. And so they decide... They will. They 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 want to. They want to recruit Hazel into Apex, obviously, because she's she's a passenger. She's a kid. They want to, you know, show her the light. Um, but Tuba presents a problem to this, and so they're they're just gonna kind of take both of them along. And whenever they can drop Tuba, they're gonna try to do it. Yeah, they're gonna try to, in Simon's words, uh, wean her off uh, of Tuba as uh, as they get through the car. Uh, and through the train, and then they will uh, eventually just, you know, leave her behind or or something like that. Uh, surely, surely, nothing more violent than that. Uh, we'll 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 see, I suppose. Um, so they end up uh, wandering their way into the next car, and it's the it's the the funny debutante ball car. It's it's a car with a big chandelier in it who wants you to learn a funny dance or you're trapped forever. Uh, and then if you do the dance properly, you get to leave. Isn't that fun? Yeah, so, you know, th- this one is kind of about, like, they're sort of forced to do do the puzzle, to actually do the train right, right? They they can't smash their way through. They can't escape out anywhere because this this dance hall is just surrounded by a void. And so they do actually learn this waltz, which is interesting. And Simon hates it the whole time. Yeah, he hates it the whole time. He absolutely refuses to to, to participate in the function, the real function of the train, right? Um, Grace, however, she's trying to play along mostly for, for Hazel's sake, right? Um, and in the process, she starts to kind of bond with hazel more talk more sort of reveal parts of herself to her you know she talks about her own childhood somewhat apparently she had a background in in having to do fancy dance things uh because of her parents um you also learn something very interesting which is that hazel has no memory of her parents at all she has no memory of most things uh and she's very very sensitive about this yeah we'll talk a little bit more about this in detail later but hazel's a very weird child she dress the way she dresses is strange she's got this like it's like a it's like a vest and a tie but nothing else that would suggest that that's a part of any bigger outfit at all really she isn't british but she's constantly saying british phrases just like you know don't be daft and stuff like that um and yeah she just has no memory of anything at all any sort of childhood or or normal parents all she remembers is tuba all she remembers is tuba and the jungle car which is very very concerning to uh to grace at least um i don't know if simon actually gives a shit he he doesn't exactly make a lot of indication that he does no so the next the next car is an interesting one because this is where we run into the cat once more um i would say it's been a while but not really the cat is in every season in fact no the cat is the cat is sort of a constant presence i would say a constant comforting presence but mm, perhaps not somewhat shady and in fact we learned that the cat and simon have a a connection 
the the cat or Samantha, as we later learn her her real name is, um, was Simon's like assigned denizen. She was she was Simon's companion, and at some point in the past, according to Simon, she abandoned him. Yes, and Simon is not what you would call very happy about this he he clearly a lot of the hatred in his heart for the denizens of the train a lot of the like seething boiling vitriol he has for these creatures comes from the fact that he feels he he feels abandoned that when he when he was young he was left to uh he, he was left to die um in the presence of a gorp. Uh, and we don't really know what a gorp is yet, but uh, uh, it, it turns out, by the way... Oh, uh, God. So, so you remember roach hounds? Like, how could I forget? Uh, well, they're gorps, apparently. Great. Yeah. So, yeah, and this, this whole episode, right, is like... You know, it starts with a funny snowball fight, and everyone seems like they're kind of getting along, including Tuba and Simon... And then we get into this cabin, and the vibes shift severely. Oh, they get so rancid so fast. Because Simon wants to leave immediately. The cat is apologizing. I was like, please, I just want to talk. Uh, Grace is like, well, oh, what is happening? Hazel is stressed out. Tuba's just kind of vibing, actually. I don't, I don't know if she thinks much about what's going on here. Then there's a... It's never going to come up again. So I do have to talk about the bear... That is also in this cabin. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. 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 There's a bear who we we encountered the bear when so so everybody comes to this cabin and first off, Samantha is immediately like annoyed with the whole thing. She's like, ah, first vacation 150 years, and now we've got tourists coming through. Right? So she's very annoyed with this. But it's very clear that she wasn't expecting any guests at all because she has a friend who's cooking pancakes in the kitchen um, who is just just hanging out uh, with his robe just wide open while he is cooking at the stove. And he, he, he like three people walk past and he's like, oh, I better, I better close this shit up. Look, I'm not going to say she's fucking that bear, but... I mean... Listen. The all signs point to something happening there, but I, that's just a funny detail that we'll never talk about again. But I do love that guy. <laughs> he's got a mug that just says "boy" on it. <laughs> yeah, it's he's he's great. He's really good. So that whole thing, yeah, like it's 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 bad vibes all around, and we kind of get a begin to get an indication of of what has led Simon down this path. But you know. Maybe the the maybe maybe he can turn it around still because our next one is the cl- color clock car. Um, once again, Simon is forced to do the train thing. He is forced to complete the puzzle and properly do the car right. Like, and it's him and Tuba working together. Yes, this is a this is a car with a key uh, involved in it. And if you remember from. The first season, those are always the ones that take the longest to really finish, and they're all just generally very annoying uh, to deal with. So, you know, Simon and Tuba aren't exactly a a pair that would team up, typically, but Hazel sort of convinces Grace 
to force the two of them together because Hazel's like, I want them to be friends. I want them to become friends. And, well, I mean... Seems like it's working. It seems like it's working, you know. It seems like it's working great. I don't know what you're talking about. Let me just turn the page. (laughs) Yeah, they... They work together, they get through the maze a little bit, um, they start, you know, they even have, like, a little bit of rapport, like, they're telling jokes a little bit, uh, Simon even goes back, uh, with the harpoon pack to kind of get her and, 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 and bring her up to the exit or whatever, um, and meanwhile, while they're doing all this, Grace and Hazel are having their own conversation, and, Grace is trying to teach Hazel what a null is, but Hazel's just not buying into this very much at all. She's like, well, what about Tuba? Tuba's nice. Tuba's trustworthy. Tuba wouldn't do anything bad. And, you know, Grace has to sort of acquiesce like, yeah, well, she's one of the good ones, I guess. Um, And ultimately, you end up like... Grace ends up in a position where instead of convincing Hazel that, you know, she should be leaning more on humans uh, and not caring about nulls, now sort of the tables get flipped a little bit and Grace is sort of forced to think about Tuba as one of the good ones here. And that's that starts to, you know, very slowly turn some cogs in her head. But don't worry about anything of, of that nature entering Simon's head because he murders Tuba. At the first chance he gets. Oh, yes. The train, the car begins to shift, and uh, they have to hurry. They, they Hazel and Grace get separated from, from Simon and Tuba. They enter the next car. Tuba is hanging off of the the, the, the ledge there, and Simon just uh, stomps on her hand and makes her fall into the wheels. And then tells Hazel exactly what happened. Yeah, well, it's it's worth noting. It's okay. It's worth noting that it was it was Tuba and Hazel that separated from from Simon and Grace, and Tuba uh, get, does this extremely like gut wrenching, like heartfelt, like you know, she sings this little lullaby that she has uh, for Hazel, this little song that they have together, and then she throws her to to Grace and Simon. Grace catches her, and then. Simon's like, you two go on ahead. I'm going to go back and save Tuba. And then he fucking crushes her hand that's grasping the side of the train car. And just, oh, uh, fuck. What is, what is like, his his insane quip that he does? It's like, we, we, we can't, like, get along as people because you're not a person. And wheels her. And he goes into the car. Basil's just like, oh, where's Tuba? And he's like, oh, we don't have to worry about Tuba anymore. I took care of her. I wheeled her. She's dead. Isn't that wonderful? And Hazel just fucking starts sobbing because, um, you know, he just told a six-year-old uh, that he killed her mom, uh, which he doesn't really get. He seems to not really understand uh, what the problem is here. The next episode is entirely about try- a six-year-old trying to figure out what grief is. Yes. Uh, well, it's about that, but it's also very partially about trying to keep a very important secret. Oh, that's right. Because while Hazel is absolutely breaking down at the loss of her mom she begins to sort of transform into a turtle um, right in front of Grace. Now, Simon, luckily, went inside when this happened. 
Grace is a little bit less homicidal, and she has, you know, she talks to Hazel and is like, you know, Hazel is asking, like, hey, am I a train person? And Grace is like, I don't know, maybe you are. Um, but hey, listen, um, we don't have time to really think about that too much. Uh, but uh, here, I'm going to teach you some breathing exercises really quickly. Um, you can't show Simon the turtle shell ever for any reason. The child does ask directly, does Simon want to kill me? Which is not something... A six-year-old should be worrying about it in any context. Yeah, and, Gra- and Grace, of course, is like, no, of course not. He would never do that. But also, please don't ever tell him. Never, ever let him know about this at all. <laughs> uh, but it's, he's, he's, he's actually normal. He's fine. Yeah, he's normal. He's fine. Don't tell him. The campfire car, as I said earlier, is is about Hazel try- wanting to hold a funeral for Tuba, basically. And Simon growing increasingly exasperated and frustrated that the stupid kid doesn't seem to understand that Tubo isn't a person while Grace increasingly understands that in fact she was a person and perhaps begins to reflect on years and years of her own actions and there you know sometimes you, you just you, you just write this the sixth episode in your in your first season uh or your third season he's like what what if we just make everybody cry yeah what if we just make everyone fucking ball their eyes out uh which which we did by the way because while simon is fucking pouting and kicking the dirt and going i'm tired of walking around in circles i'm gonna go stand by the door and wait for you because he's a fucking petulant child um everybody else uh which say grace and hazel are trying to find a perfect spot um simon at one point really upsets hazel and she runs away into a tree so that like you know she doesn't reveal her horrible secret uh or anything like that and it turns out that this was like a little bit serendipitous at least because a tree is exactly the perfect place for tuba's funeral because of course tuba likes to be up in trees uh where she could see everything and you know, is safe from animals and et cetera, et cetera. And Hazel holds a little eulogy while she holds one of the rocks from the jungle car. She says this was important because it was ours. And it, we don't know what significance that rock had, uh, but, you know. I mean, I assume it's just because it was from their home. And one thing, you know, we didn't mention quite yet, Tuba had children, they aren't there anymore, whether they died or got lost or something, uh, which is why she had this such this this close bond with Hazel. Um, and there's an interesting thing where, yeah, so Hazel eulogizes Tuba and then s- tells Grace to do the same. And Grace has this moment of, you know, doing it like kind of sarcastically and not really being sincere about it. But then she she looks into Hazel's eyes and like stops being an asshole um and actually eulogizes tuba and starts crying and she doesn't really understand why because she's been saying her basically her entire life on this train these things aren't real their emotions aren't real you can do whatever you want to them because they're fake but now she has to come to the realization that they are people and i think 
the show does a really interesting thing here, a really important thing. Um, Infinity Train does not, as a show, beat around the bush in most instances. Uh, I think that it does a fantastic job at being extremely blunt and forward with its messaging. And I think this is a really good way to illustrate that because language is a tool uh, and language is used in a way to give or take away humanity and personhood uh, from people all the time. And in the way that the Apex have framed things, in the way Grace and Simon specifically, personally, have framed things, because this is all they're doing, they created this ideology, they frame them as nulls, they refer to them as uh, as things, you know, they're not people. But as soon as Grace is forced to talk about Tuba with the qualities of a person, to talk about Tuba and say that she was nice, she was kind, she was quiet, but not in a bad way, she starts to internally feel grief for a real living person because she has begun to conceptualize Tuba as a real living person. And it's something that she hasn't quite fully grasped yet, which is why she's so confused at how hard she's taking it and how she's being racked with like shaking, so- like ugly crying. Oh, the ugly crying doesn't start yet. Because then Hazel sings that little lullaby uh, that she and Tuba had, and then Grace starts ugly crying. Yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. That's when the real waterworks start, like, like tears, snot, shaking, the whole nine yards, and she doesn't really get it yet. But what's happened here is that the seeds that were planted in the previous episodes of, like, you know, maybe maybe gnolls are actually people, uh, have finally taken root, and she is starting to have this horrible, like, black bile well up from within her uh, that is like, oh, hey, I'm a fucking monster. Uh, but but she, she doesn't quite get to address that just yet. No, we'll get there. But she's, she's starting to have uh, that realization creep up on her, much like a... Uh, a fast encroaching tidal wave. So the whole time, the, the, one of the main reasons that Simon is being so fucking grumpy in this episode is that he thinks they're like one car away from the apex. Uh, he's got this little, little number detector thing that detects, you know, big numbers. And it says that there's a big, big number cluster, like one car away. So clearly we're right next to the mall car. Um, except... The, the next car over is not the mall car, and the number that that thing was detecting was not the various members of Apex. It was, in fact, Amelia, who has been basically following them backwards, trying to figure out what the fuck is wrong with the train. Yeah, she literally just peeks her head back in the in, in the car that they just entered, and she's just like, hey, what the fuck are you doing to the train, you freaks? Um, it's also worth noting, by the way, that part of Simon's attitude in, uh, in, in the campfire car is also rooted in him being like, well, fuck it, we don't have to pretend to be nice to this kid anymore. As soon as we get to the mall car, we'll just toss her in with the rest of the kids and go back to our fucking business. Because Simon doesn't give a shit about anybody else. To him, these are his toy soldiers. We'll talk about that. 
Um, so in the next in the next episode, which has a very long title that I'm not going to say, uh, we we kind of get the turn for many characters, right? This is where lots of things are revealed. First of all, they they learn. They they kind of first encounter Amelia and see that she has she has the biggest number they've ever seen. It's going up to her neck, but they also don't trust her because she claims to be the conductor. And clearly, they know that this is not true. The conductor is a, is a man in a big robot hat with a cool sine wave on it that they made their mark. So both of them immediately reject this and run away from her when she's when she's trying to ask them like, "Hey." Have you been noticing any turtle-related anomalies in the fucking train? I'm trying to figure out why cars keep glitching out. Yeah, well, it's it's worth noting. It's worth noting that Simon actually is kind of immediately enamored with Amelia. He wants to know more, but Grace is the one who kind of rips him away and is like, "Hey, listen, uh, code seventy-six point three of the Apex. Uh, don't trust adults. We gotta go. We gotta go. Let's uh, don't let her talk anymore. Ha ha. Forget everything here about turtles." Yeah, and this is where Simon and, and Grace really start becoming at odds, because Grace is not going along with Simon's shit, really, and he's getting very mad about it. Um, So he actually he actually goes back, because, so, we should say, something that perhaps we haven't made clear yet, this entire time, Grace's number has been going down, because she's been a better person throughout this whole thing, and she's... Doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to think about it, doesn't want Simon to know about it. So Simon goes all the way back to the cat's car and's like, hey, something fucked up is going on with Grace. I need I need you to tell me why. And Samantha's just like, I you should at look, you should know why at this point. I don't know what I can tell you. Yeah, like she's She's trying to play her usual aloof self. She's trying to generally answer his questions, but Simon is scary when he's angry. He's throwing furniture. He's getting up in her face. He legitimately looks like he might try and hurt her. And, you know, she doesn't really have a choice in this situation other than to kind of acquiesce to him eventually, which, despite it all, you know, she she still does care about him, and she wants him to be okay. So she ends up giving him a a vial of tape lice uh, and a little cube that lets you um, look at the 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 mind tape that you can you can pull out of people. Um, and she warns him, she's like, "Hey, listen, you know, this is a huge violation." to do to somebody and also you may not be prepared for the kinds of things that you see in somebody's brain when you like go rip shit out of there uh and he's like Ugh, i'm not a child dummy i can handle it i'll be fine she also warns him about amelia because obviously we know that she and amelia have not exactly gotten along in the past and she also she also reinforces to him that a number is just a number, which we'll talk more about in in our character thing. But uh, the next episode, hey boy, um, it's called the Hey Ho Wo Car, and it's named the Hey Ho Wo Car because there's a bunch of tubes in the ceiling, and out of those tubes fall a bunch of um, knockoff thwomps, and every single one says either Hey Ho 
or well, as it falls into a big chasm. And eventually, there's so many of them that you can walk over the top of them and leave. And that's the puzzle. I assume that this car is just a test of patience. Um, <laughs> which, of course, Simon is failing extremely. Oh, yeah. This, this dude has negative patience. But he... Amelia sits everyone down and kind of tries to let them know that their weird conductor ideology is a bunch of bullshit. Things get heated and Hazel transforms into a turtle and and Grace kind of fakes knowing, you know, not knowing about it. Thus, you know, to save face with Simon, betraying Hazel and Amelia like ba- basically solves the whole thing going on with Hazel right there. She's like, "Oh, I know what's going on. You're the glitch. When I was in charge of the train, I was trying to recreate my old life and it caused a lot of problems and and you must be a sort of weird offshoot from that time because th- it explains a lot about her. It explains the turtles, it explains the like weird clothing and it explains like the random Britishisms that Hazel would always say. Yes. She she ends up apparently being some variety of simulacrum of Ulrich and this is so there's a couple of very important things to happen here. Hazel does not turn back into a human after this point. She has like started starting at the sort of tail end of the previous episode she starts kind of coming to terms with her being a turtle and she's like this is just me this is who i am i don't i don't want to hide it um and grace is you know trying to keep her doing that and uh after she sort of reveals that she's a turtle to everybody um instead of grace admitting that she knew the whole time and 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 stuff like that grace instead is like oh well how could this possibly happen and she even goes one step further and trying to like get in simon's good graces i suppose trying to keep him on side she very darkly uh hazel asks if uh they're going to leave her behind and she very darkly says i'll go where i want null and this sort of shatters hazel a little bit here and more importantly it completely breaks down any relationship that the girl had uh with either grace or simon like she already hated simon's ass uh but but grace is now in the same boat and we're not done destroying relationships no because simon puts the 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 tape lice in there while grace is sleeping having decided that he he is fed up with her weird behavior. Um, and he sees where where Grace told Hazel that she wasn't going to tell Simon about the turtle thing. And this basically destroys his trust in Grace entirely. Yeah, he's sobbing while he's looking at this. He feels like he has lost the only person in the whole world he can trust because she didn't, she didn't tell him about... Uh, you know, somebody that he would have immediately murdered. Uh, This is obviously a slight against him uh, in that regard. Uh, Christ. Origami car. Whew. Well, there's one thing I wanted to to also point out here, which is that Simon gets scary. Simon's quite scary because when the thing that, that really puts him 
over the edge to using the tape lice is that Simon wants to immediately leave the thwomp car. He can just harpoon over and they can go to the door and leave. It's like not even that big of a of like a jump. It's not that big a deal. But Grace is like, listen, I just I just want to spend the night here. It's safer this way. And she just repeats that it's safer this way a couple of times in a very similar way to how Tuba would say the same thing uh, several times in the previous episodes. And this sort of clicks in his head that something is fucked here. Uh, And he just goes completely placid, like his face just goes completely neutral, and he goes, okay. And he goes and lays on the floor. And that, my friends, if somebody does that, that is not a red flag. That is like a blaring klaxon alarm siren. Uh, Run away. Leave. When you have someone who who often gets angry and aggressive like Simon does, often the scariest mode for them isn't, you know, yelling and, and being a loud asshole. Because when they're really actually angry, they're just going to get really quiet. Yeah. Yeah, it's scary. And that brings us to the origami car where everyone's having a bad time, except Amelia, who once again doesn't... I love how ill-equipped amelia is for dealing with people especially children oh she hates children she hates children it's so funny because obviously she does she was the false conductor she was using the train against its intended purpose and she's kind of been put on as maintenance to kind of help redeem herself uh but you know she knows a lot about how the train works mechanically she doesn't know how to interact with people or care much about interacting with people so she's just kind of hanging out uh hazel no longer one you know just doesn't want anything to do with with simon or grace anymore simon is noticing that as they're going through this origami car grace is like going out of her way to not stomp the shit out of all these paper origami living cranes and calling them denizens yeah she's also bawling her fucking eyes out because uh in before they left the the thwomp car um and she's she basically practically gets on her hands and knees like fucking gary come home style and is like begging hazel to come with her and she's like no i don't want to go with you you're a fucking asshole like you're both assholes i have no interest in being with you at all uh like i'm going with amelia because she's like she can tell me what's going on with me and i can go somewhere where i'm not gonna be fucking killed by a random psycho murderer um grace does not take this well grace uh uh she she's very very upset uh mostly at herself i imagine simon simon on the other hand he's kind of just poking at her he's trying to get her angry and get her mad and make her upset at this point he's he's really like prodding at every like little thing you know she tells him that she's not in the mood and he just keeps going like into her and stomping on as many of these creatures as he can because he he knows that it's bothering her and then he turns the memory machine on her which as we know don't 
interface with your memories. Bad things happen. That happened in season one. Whenever you are in your own memory tape, things get fucked really quickly. They do. And and, and it's worth bearing in mind, like, you, you could go like, oh, well, you know, maybe Simon didn't know. Like, he's never encountered this this technology before there's no way he could have known no the cat tells him the cat straight up is like samantha's like hey listen whatever you do don't look at your own tape this can cause extremely extremely bad problems and he's like okay wink and we kind of get more of an understanding of what where grace was when she got on the train um interestingly we never get this with simon and we'll talk more about that later but with grace we get much more of an understanding of who she was before all of this. She was the daughter of, like, a, w- a very wealthy and influential family, like politicians or something, or some people who deal with politicians regularly. There, there's a bit where the ambassador is name-dropped, right? Like, high society shit. And as a result, her parents basically have no time for her at all. They just keep shuttling her to various dance classes and handing her off to um a a rotating cast of of nannies and caretakers which we see in a very a very a very cool bit of of like imagery where it's just her mom saying a bunch of different names and you just see empty clothes of what these people wore because she had no time to form any ideas about them just the most surface level things because they just they were around for like a month and then we're out of her life forever exactly exactly her memories in this are actually somewhat somewhat loose they're a little bit uh more interpretive uh or interpretative than they are like literal in a lot of cases um you have that in this ex- as an example and uh later after she ends up getting on the train itself uh she ends up you know, seeing the, you know, true conductor, quote unquote, she sees Amelia in her big sort of robot suit. And in her little kid memory of it, uh, Amelia's suit is this giant hulking shadowy mass with like a big dripping maw and out comes like a single human arm uh, reaching for something uh, from the steward. And in reality, it, you know, she thinks about it for a second. She's like, hey, wait a minute. And it, it, it gets more clear. And she remembers the actual suit, which to a small child would look really huge. But in reality, isn't all that big at all. Um, and also, it's worth noting that the way that Grace has framed it is that Amelia saved her when she was a child. But really what happened was the steward was going to absolutely murk her ass, and Amelia called her off because she got what she needed from that car and it was time to leave. Yeah, she didn't care much about Grace at all. And that that memory, that built-up shadowy figure, is is both her her child memory and also the years of myth-making about that, right? The years of, like lying to herself and others about what happened that sort of builds this fake memory in her head and yeah i mean there's other stuff right where it's like yeah her her never getting any sort of acknowledgement from her parents causes her to act out i love this scene where she sees a few of her like dance classmates at a, at a table in an ice cream parlor and like 
you know, they're they're being kind of snippy with her, and she just says the one thing that basically destroys their friend group, seemingly. Like, she just fucking pressure points their friendship by saying one thing and and just everyone explodes into arguments right which you know we've seen her before in in book two she was the one who was very emotionally manipulative uh and and she is with simon in this season yes she's she uses her emotional uh like, like she she has a high degree of emotional intelligence she has a uh, uh, an ability to read people she has an ability to comfort people and she uses that to manipulate all of the people around her she uses that mani- to manipulate simon she uses that to manipulate the apex children uh and she uses that to manipulate hazel but of course over the course of, of this she has been getting a little bit better about being quite as you know diabolical about the whole ordeal simon however uh has gotten worse uh as noted by this entire fucking charade that he's putting on here and it gets even worse because as as we sort of march through her memories here simon appears every now and again he's like oh this is all lies you're just using amelia's propaganda to try and get at me or whatever when it turns out that amelia wasn't actually as big and scary as her kid brain imagined and the very next thing that they end up seeing is actually the uh the the encounter with simon and the gorp where uh the where where samantha ran away and grace showed up to save him and one very interesting thing that I do want to note here is that it's actually it's it is actually Grace's fault that the Apex's ideology began because I it it, it seems like Simon is the one who came up with a lot of the basic stuff here the sort of more military-esque tenants but it right here in this scene where Simon asks, "Hey, why is your number so big?" And Grace replies, oh, because I'm just really good at the train. That's, you know, her trying to sort of seem cool to this kid uh, really set in motion a series of dominoes. It's a lot like the funny meme image. It is. And as a result of this, Simon basically renders her comatose and just shoves her body over as, as she gets lost in her memory palace and just leaves. He just fucking leaves. Well, there's a very specific way that he does that, because uh, after that, it, it sort of flashes forward by a lot to when they are they're much bigger and they're recruiting the very first apex, the very first child into the apex. And, you know, Grace and Simon give this speech and, you know, Grace is like, oh, you know, we're we stick together. We trust each other. We're a family and all this stuff. And Simon's like, oh, it's great to know that you've been lying this entire time to everyone and when she tries to explain, like, hey, I'm not lying about any of this. Why are you on this? And he shows her the 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 bit where she tells Hazel that they're not going to tell Simon about the turtle thing. 
It's the four, it's like the five or six walls of this, of this cube all looping this video as it crunches down closer and closer onto her. And she's just like basically begging for him to stop this. Like she's trying to explain herself and eventually she starts breaking down. She's like, listen, like you were just going to kill this kid. I couldn't tell you this. Do you want me to say sorry? Will that make it better? Is that what you want to hear? And he just appears looming over her and he just like judges her unfit to live basically leaves her trapped in there and just yeah just flicks her limp corpse over onto the floor staring glassy-eyed at this like repeating image of of uh her telling hazel not to tell simon about the turtle thing it's like it is a level of cruelty that is uh that is truly on another level and you'll note that when he does this, he starts to finally get his wish because he now has a number comparable to Amelia. It's creeping up his neck. Which brings us to the finale, the, uh, the New Apex. Very ominous name. Very ominous. Grace eventually breaks out of this mental prison by kind of like, you know, confronting herself and trying to to claw her way out of this like horrible spiral of like no i'm going to try harder i'm going to try better um and and when she pops out she actually starts like fixing all of the all of the crumpled origami creatures that simon just stomped on which will come in very handy later yes in about like 10 minutes specifically and she sees she sees her reflection in one of them, and she sees the apex symbol, and she is kind of disgusted with it. She just wipes that shit right off. So, how long do we think it's been since Simon locked her in her in her own mind? I imagine that it was at least several hours. Like she was probably stuck in her own head for like I don't know six maybe seven hours i was i was gonna slightly slightly shorter i was gonna say like two or three either way he simon was very busy very busy grace returns to the mall car finds it completely silent and then of course talked about variously throughout this this season we see we, we know that simon has been writing a fantasy novel where all of the characters are named after the people he knows and he he is the, the the it's called the return of the one true king and no no guesses on who his self insert is <laughs> but he okay so he found a cool military like old school napoleon military coat he slicked his hair back he has gone full dictator on the apex. He has made up. He's got a fucking palanquin. He made up a new a new fucking term for for Grace. What was it? It was a void. Void. So when Grace comes back, she's like, "Hey, what the fuck is a void?" Because one of the kids holds her at like broom point. Is like, "We don't want voids in here. We were told we we got to tell Simon about this because there's a void." And, you know, Simon comes down the escalators on his fucking stupid palanquin, and he's like, oh, Apex, what is a void? 
and they're just like, uh, a, a leader who is no longer fit to lead. What do we do with the void? We wheel them, and he guy he, he basically orders all of these children to grab Grace and throw her off of the fucking train. Yeah, he he has been trying to indoctrinate the children into murder. Um, and I mean. Like we said, it's pretty easy when you have spent years banging into their heads using language that, oh, these denizens aren't real. So he's trying to do the same trick. He's like, oh, she's a void. She's not real. Just a wheeler like all the rest of them. Exactly, exactly. Like, these kids have already been indoctrinated into the idea that murder is okay if the person that you're trying to murder is designated a non-person. So it really does not take very much effort to start expanding the definition of what you feel a non-person is uh, to whatever is convenient. Uh, which, by the way, again, yeah, Infinity Train don't pull punches. Uh, who boy. Um, so she she ends up basically being uh, pushed over, like, right, right up to the ledge of the train here. Uh, and she, like, as a last-ditch effort, is like, hey, uh, did you know that we met the fucking conductor and Simon has been lying to you the entire time about not meeting the conductor? Uh, yeah, she's just like a regular lady. And this gives the kids just enough pause that they're not willing to throw her over the edge. Simon, however, has no such compunctions. They have a whole fight. They have like a like a whole choreographed fight where, they're tr- where Simon is trying to fucking throw her off this train. And... Grace comes to a realization. She's talking about how, yeah, I, you're in pain. I'm sorry about that. But she eventually becomes comes to realize that, like, wait, none of this is on me. I am not responsible for the way that you are. Yeah, like I don't, I, I don't owe you anything. And you know, it's like you know, the roach hounds arrive. I refuse to call them gorps. No, thank you. You don't want to call them gorps, but no. it's so it's so funny. Don't you love a funny gorp? The dog, those dogs do not go gorp. They go <laughs> horrible rattling noise that lingers in my nightmares. Um, <laughs> so they kind of interrupt the fight, and you know, there, there's a bit of like. Grace saves Simon, and Simon saves Grace. And we're actually no, it's actually great, entirely Grace saving Simon. Simon keeps trying to throw off. Yeah, the no, si- Simon. Simon is trying to fucking yank her down while she's trying to hold on for dear life as this fucking creature tries to eat her soul, and she like manages to, to like grab one of his magnet shoes and get the 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 roach hound to to leave her alone. Uh, his other magnet, she was damaged in the fight, so he loses his footing and starts to fall off the train. She grabs him, she saves him, pulls him up onto the, onto the, like, walkway or whatever. And he's like, hey, why the fuck did you just save me? And she's like, ah, dude, I don't know. And they're just both laying there out of breath, just chilling for a second. The kids in the background are really happy because, you know, neither of them died. Uh, and Simon just whips around and both like double foot kicks her as hard as he possibly can off the side of the train into the wheels and he starts laughing maniacally he's like he he has this broke something in his brain he is sobbing he's angry he's grieving he's sad he's happy he's over the moon and also under it he's like completely broken and every inch of his entire body is covered in his number 
and like it's the you can tell it's this it's just this moment of like pure failure of impulse control of like what if he kicked her off the train and then he does and just fucking snaps entirely because he has just killed perhaps the only person he's ever come close to caring about other than himself and yeah he is like the the fucking lightning is flashing but grace was saved by the origami birds um and he sees this but he doesn't have time to sort of comprehend that because directly after uh that happens yeah remember how there was a gorp there Roachhound tackles him and kills him. Yeah, and we're not talking like, you know, oh, you know, knocks him off the train or whatever, you know, cut to black kind of thing. Oh, no, 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 no. We find out what the Roachhounds actually do to you if they get unfettered access to your holsties. Uh, They melt you into ash, like bones and all. You turn into a gray fucking puddle. You, they drain your life. We all, I think we already saw that they like they they sort of turn tulip into a little bit of a husk. Uh, in 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 the first season, but yeah, if you just they will just devour your life energy. You see Simon's skin melt into ash. His eyeballs dissolve. His skull is there, and then it's not because he just turns into a pile of ash. And all of the children see it. All of the children see it, and the the roach hound that does this, uh, apparently you know, how much life force you pull out of someone is directly proportional to their number, because uh, after this happens, the roach hound fucking explodes (laughs) to too much number. Yeah, um, and so Grace has a moment of, you know, dealing with that, and then we get our ending here, which is Grace, you know, the, we see the mall car has been kind of cleaned up, and Apex has has kind of removed their markings, and they're wondering what's going to happen now, and, and Grace is, is basically like, I... You know, I was wrong. I've been leading you wrong the, all of these years, and I want to make up for it. We are going to to move forward in a, in like a new direction and a brighter direction together. And like it, it ends on an upbeat note, but also like it's it's kind of a it's kind of like a very uncertain note of the future, right? Because like fuck, so you just watched. Your best friend, yeah, he was a complete sack of shit and completely lost it towards the end, but, like, she spent seven years with this person, basically attached at the hip, and he just got eaten by a fucked up, like, alien bug dog in front of her, and now she's got all these fucking kids who are looking to her, like, what what do we do now? They, They have learned that their entire worldview is a lie, um, and so she's kinda, she's kinda have to take responsibility and that that act of trying to take responsibility that act of telling these children listen we're i'm not gonna be your leader anymore the apex is over we're just gonna have to figure out what to do together that's where we end it uh on this on this very this very bittersweet note at the end here and i think that that might be one of the better ways to end it here. I, I think that that's a, I think that's a really good way 
to wrap up this narrative to to leave it on this note of like yeah you know maybe they'll be okay maybe now that they're going to like actually try to figure stuff out try to be decent people you know maybe things will work out but you don't really know and it's always possible that they could go back to the way they were before you know they spent so long doing that that it wouldn't be exactly unreasonable for some of the children to kind of relapse in that regard so you know you're just left on this note of like a lot of people died a lot of relationships got crushed and maybe things will get better hopefully they'll get better but you don't really know so let's 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 start talking about these characters i want i want to get into it oh yes and also i want to say so i I always like to track how each season treats the the main purpose of the train and the numbers right in the first season it was very straightforward the train and the number were a mystery for tulip to solve right that was the introduction season two where we have our main protagonist is someone who is a denizen of the train and wants to be her own person and live her own life and to do that she views the number as recognition of individuality as recognition of personhood you are not just a a cog in the machine you are real and ultimately she never actually receives that from the train she fools the system into letting her out using like trickery and that is that is what her journey on the train represents to lake in this one, our main protagonists are people who have rejected the entire purpose of the train, that being sort of a, a, a tool to help people understand themselves better, to under, to kind of help them confront the things that are wrong with them and how, how to kind of move forward and, and improve as a person. They have done the exact opposite. They have... Over the course of their time on the train, they have gotten worse and worse and worse, especially Simon. Simon got so much worse. Oh, yes. The Infinity Train Book 3 asks a very important question. What if you build a big machine that is designed to put a person in one end and change them on the inside and shoot them out the other end, uh, a changed person, right? What if that happened, but you changed a person the wrong way? You changed a person bad. They got worse, much worse. And with Simon, he gets about as bad as it is possible to get. His number grows so large, it is at a point that it is functionally an exponent. It is like, you're he is irredeemable in the eyes of the train's mathematic system, and even more so in the terms of any actual system of human morality. And an important thing to note, and you mentioned this earlier, Simon's backstory basically is unknown to us because it doesn't matter. I don't care what he was on the train for. It doesn't matter. It, like, he is... It, it would not add anything to his character if I knew what he did that got him here, right? If I knew, like, what we learned with Grace of, like, how she got here. We need that for her. She's the main character. But the point of Simon as a character is that 
it does not matter who you get on the train as. It's, the, it's, the, it's who you leave the train as. And Simon left the train as a murderer, as a despot, as someone who so entirely lacked any sort of empathy, not just for the denizens, but for other people in general, that he just destroyed his own life and the lives of those around him. Yes, he is an irredeemable sack of shit. And I think that it's like, it is very rare, I think, to find a show, particularly in this age bracket, this sort of target demographic, that is willing to actually pull that trigger. Not just the death one. Obviously, the death one has been getting more and more broached as time goes on here. But the trigger of, like, being willing to point at someone and say, this person is irredeemable. They have gone past a point of no return. They can't make up for what they have done or attempted to do. They have ruined themselves in a way that you can't come back from. And in a sort of nest of contemporaries that are not willing to go that far, uh, where every character functionally has the capacity for some sort of redemption, I think that it is genuinely really refreshing and important, really important, to have that moment where you say, you know, sometimes, sometimes kids, somebody can be truly evil in a way you can't come back from. And obviously, the answer isn't, so you feed them to some kind of horrible space beast. The answer is, you cut them out of your life. And it just so happens that Simon was cut out of Grace's life through the uh, interjection of a horrible space beast. But... The point stands. I find it. I find myself thinking about uh, Inspector Mace from Book Two and how that whole that whole episode was basically just like, "Hey, kill your oppressors." Yeah, exactly. Like Infinity Train does not pull punches. It does not like put the kid gloves on. It will straight up tell you to your face. Hey, if somebody is an evil, conniving piece of shit who murders people and wants to murder more people and is willing to reclassify you as a non-person in order to make it easier to murder you, that person shouldn't continue to exist. And it's awesome that they go that far. I do want to say that, that Mace and Simon both represent very, very different things because Mace... Is obviously a, a as a character is representational of sy- systemic oppression, right? He he is literally a fucking mirror cop. Simon, I think if you if you take away all of the murder bits of him, which is a fair bit of him, we must we must admit. But if if you remove that, he is still a gargantuan piece of shit because, as I said, the 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 man simply has no empathy. Um, and it's it's like he is uninterested in developing it, right? Because that's what happens a lot of these times when you have someone like this, where it's not that someone is born without empathy or born evil, evil or whatever shit that is, right? It's that they're just uninterested in it. They just don't want to see things through the eyes of other people or think about other people's experiences. They're just like, well, no, I'm, f- I'm actually the one who's right. And actually my way of viewing the world is the real one and everyone else is stupid and they should just listen to me. 
It's also, I think with him, there's another angle of it too, because it is that sort of superiority of intellect, right? That superiority of purpose where he's like, well, I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to worry about that because I'm smarter and I know what's up and, 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 you know, yada, yada. But there's another angle of it too, where he has been hurt. Legitimately, he has been hurt in his life, you know, and he wasn't hurt in ways that were deliberately hostile to him. You know, Grace lying to him wasn't a hostile move. It was a protective move. Uh, the cat leaving him was not a hostile move. It was a protective move. She was protecting herself. Samantha was trying to get away from a roach hound so that she didn't fucking die. And she didn't, she did not, it's worth it, she did not realize that Simon was not following her until afterwards and until Grace had linked up with him and therefore the cat could not find him anymore. Um, but, of course, Simon has a victim complex the size of a fucking star. Oh, yes. He will find any situation, any at all, obvious or not, and figure out a way to twist it and and warp it into like, well, clearly they're trying to hurt me. I'm the one who's hurt here, whether it's the cat leaving you or or Grace hanging out with this fucking kid, or Grace changing. Like, it's all out to hurt me. And I wanted to talk about one of the big things, a thing I noticed back when his first appearance in season two, and something that is directly mentioned by the cat here, his his two biggest hobbies. Number one is painting miniatures, painting military miniatures. And number two is writing this fantasy novel. Now, what are both of these all about? It is about taking little representations of people, whether small toys or authored characters, and doing with them what you will. It is all about control and intent and a feeling of superiority. You are the you are the you are the mighty the mighty general, the brilliant tactician overseeing his his fucking battlefield plans. You are you are the the architect of, of a whole fantasy world, and it will go exactly as you deign. Those are the things that he spends his time doing when he is not destroying the infinity train. Exactly. And it's worth noting that he a lot of his attitude is is sort of like this 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 snowball situation too because when you build yourself an ideology around some people being non-people some people literally just being toys and then then you start to like that will bleed over into your perception of other people like you know he doesn't quite go that far with the apex themselves he doesn't quite see them as toys or fully disposable, but he does see them as his toy soldiers. He sees them as his his underlings, his peons to order around, like this is a fucking RTS game. And like, no, bro, these are like 10-year-olds. And as a contrast, what is Hazel usually seen doing when in her off time? What is What is she usually doing? talking to people obviously not all of it is genuine but we see grace interacting with the kids in the first episode 
And she is, you know, she's doing the classic mom thing of a kid comes up to you with a fucking pile of garbage. And you go, oh, wow, this is great. I'm going to put this in my super special loot cave for the the most epic loot only. Um, In this case, it's literally a fucking pile of broken light bulbs. And she says this to... To three children in a row or whatever. Like, she says she she says the same thing. And the whole thing with her is that, like, the whole thing she has to confront with Hazel is, yeah, a lot of these connections and relationships she has to other people, she sometimes views as a means to an end. But she Grace makes this actual connection with Hazel and fucks it up catastrophically. Just not you can't get much worse than how she fucks it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, she's also, like, it's not even just about a means-to-an-end style thing. It's also, like, what she realizes when she's deep in her own brain is she realizes that a lot of of her situation is that she's scared. She's deeply afraid of being alone. So... I don't think ultimately Grace was the one who sort of solidified the tenets of the apex that the that that the denizens were nulls that the denizens weren't to be trusted. I think a lot of that was probably coming from Simon. But because of how Grace is, because she's so scared of being alone, she is willing to play along with just about anything. She will manipulate and she will acquiesce and she will go with a flow pretty much no matter to what end that flow goes because she can't stand the idea of not being surrounded by friends even if those friendships are predicated on deeply unhealthy bonds so we we come i think hazel is one of the most interesting characters in this because her her nature is constantly changing, right? When she's introduced, she's just a kid. She's got a weird number, sure, but like seems normal enough. And and as as time goes on, things really get weirder and weirder until finally the full the, the full truth is revealed. And what I find most interesting about her in relationship to Grace is that she is the ultimate rejection of the apex ideology and otherment of trained denizens, right? Because Grace has spent this entire time becoming really connected with this kid and caring a lot about this kid. And then it's revealed that in, in the mind of apex, she is not real. She is not a person. In fact, she is much more of that than even normal trained denizens are. As Amelia reveals, She's literally not supposed to exist. She's like a fucking mistake. She's a bunch of fucking garbled ideas rolled up into one being. She was not even authored with intent like some of the other denizens are. She is just like a glitch. Um, So not only is she like not a person in the eyes of Apex, like she's not a she's she's not a person in the in the eyes of of like the train, but Grace loves her and cares about her so fuck what do i do with that information she says yeah and like god i i i love how her her nature as like 
sort of a shape-shifting denizen. It's part of every every facet of, of her character here. Like, she takes on the energy that is given to her in a lot of these in, in a lot of these situations, right? And I think maybe the most interesting thing to me uh is after she actually does end up getting her her stuff revealed here after she begins to grow much farther apart from simon and much closer to grace she starts to be like less afraid of simon the more grace is supportive of her she gets she just gets protective of grace even like there there's a bit um in the uh extremely long tediously named uh what was it the ca- the canyon of the serpent the golden winged serpent's car or something where simon tries to like look at grace's number and grace doesn't want to show him and he like grabs her arm and starts trying to like take her like opera glove off because he wants to see it he needs to know and uh you know she refuses and gets mad at him and sends him away and hazel gets really upset she she her her shell appears her claws appear and She's like, no, it's, he can't touch you like that. He can't talk to you like that. I'll protect you. I'll be Tuba. And I don't know. Like, I just find that really just how how she sort of changes from being this, like, you know, she's very childish and, and but she's never really meek. She She ends up, like, unfortunately being forced to grow quite a lot over the course of uh these episodes here and she ends up getting to be i think genuinely much stronger than either simon or grace uh could ever be you know there's there's a point where it's it's framed as her being like strong and powerful to become a member of the apex but i think her rejection of the apex is what makes her much stronger than than basically any of them. Yeah, um, and I, I I think it's a shame that we will never see her again because that is a character they definitely would have revisited in future seasons. I think, uh, which we will never get. Yeah, uh, fucking uh, just your your daily your daily reminder. Uh, fuck HBO Max. Fuck the guy who owns like Warner Brothers Discovery or whatever. That guy can go walk off a cliff because i can confirm she is not in season four Ugh. so i mean i don't know if there's much to talk about with tuba i feel like we actually covered a lot of tuba's stuff in the the synopsis because unfortunately tuba is killed halfway through the season but i think she makes she's a, she's a fun character design she makes a strong impression but i think the the real thing about this right if the second season of this show is all about like self-actualization and rebellion in the face of people who want to prevent that this one is all about like reaching deep within yourself to kind of pull out of toxic mindsets right of like trying to be better than your worst self who in this case is simon exactly exactly and I think that ultimately that ends up being like th- that that messaging is delivered so, so well. Like it might be the most effective that I've seen at this general idea uh, because like I, I and I, I said this a few times in this in this podcast here, but 
it's so important that if you're going to talk, and particularly if you're going to talk to an audience of children about these kind of concepts, you have to be, you, you walk a fine line because you don't want to get overly, you, you don't want to traumatize anybody, but it's very, very important that you don't pull punches, that you do not kind of go halfway in your messaging here. If you're trying to approach the topics of like systemic bigotry and violence, of oppression, of of peoples, of the very real ways that anybody can be propagandized to and indoctrinated into an ideology where you other and dehumanize uh, before you know it, you're you're where you're part of something really horrible and you've completely warped your own brain because of it. You know, if you're trying to tackle those topics, you, you walk a very fine line. And I think that Infinity Train is one of the very few examples I can think of that really does hit on it well. Um, we ended up watching uh, Keep on the Edge of Wonder Beasts for uh, the Patreon. And that show, I think, kind of doesn't quite get there with its messaging because it has a very similar thing it's trying to say uh its primary villain in the latter half of its runtime is a literal actual eugenicist uh funnily enough her name is also amelia um but you know she i, I don't feel like the show ever truly takes the step that it needed to where it acknowledged that she was not a redeemable character that she was a character who could not come back from the brink where she was standing at she she had fallen too many times to actually get back up and she's ultimately done in by kind of a, a serendipitous accident in in the end right like she 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 is she just kind of trips and falls over into a big pit um, and there's, like, a big guy down there who sort of grabs her. You know, you never get that moment where the characters acknowledge that, like, this woman who would not hesitate to kill you, um, who was about to kill you, you know, it never takes the extra step to say that, you know, maybe this isn't somebody who can come back from a state like that. And I think that it's it's really important that here they they do make sure to hammer that point in. Right. I, I think Kupo steps up to the line and then just steps back, takes a few steps back at the very end. Because ultimately, I think everything before that very last episode was pretty solid. And then they just... I don't know. I don't know what happened there at the end. Yeah, it very much just fizzles out. And it's not, you know, it's not like, ah, the hero must kill the villain. But I think these two characters, Amelia and Simon, their their ultimate fates are are comparable in certain ways, right? Like like you said, Amelia is is undone by happenstance, by stumbling into a callback, pretty much, um, and is is removed in a way that that has no implications on the heroes and don't and they and 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 like 
gone forever, like a very, a very clean and tidy one. Um, and, and similarly, I mean, Simon's demise is not necessarily like a, a fucking dog jumps on him, right? Like it's not entirely dissimilar, but one, the dog was already involved in the scene from the beginning. And two, I don't think that Grace needed to kill him. Um, I don't think he could have been a part of her life after this, obviously. Um, but like his end one at this point, he is such a fucking monster that it is like, it is like cathartic to see him meet his end in such a way. But two, there's just no way he could have stuck around. Like he, 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 he had, he had crossed several lines several times over. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I think like that, that key difference Simon Simon does cross that line, I think, very, very definitively. He he kicks Grace off the side of the train with the full intent to kill her, like, capital K, kill her. Um, whereas with Amelia, Amelia, in the end, um, she doesn't quite cross that line. Like, she picks up a shard of glass, like, prepared to kill Kibo in the very end there, but she never gets the chance to even really attempt it. Um, and that's, like, I, I think there's... there 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 ends up being like a textural difference there and why I think ultimately like with, with Amelia, her, her sort of downfall is like, it ends up not really changing anyone's perspective, right? Like for the entire last like episode, couple of episodes, Kipo is more or less convinced that um, Dr. Amelia can change, that she can still change her that she can still be a good person and nothing ever dissuades her from this and nothing ever changes her mind even after that happens and she falls into a big hole like i don't think that her opinion was was changed it just sort of gets dropped um and i don't know it's it goes for that punch and pulls it at the last possible second whereas infinity train follows through and socks you directly in the face it does, and when it does, it shows you a teenage boy melting into a pile of gray goop. So, I mean, is there anything else to be said about Infinity Train Book 3, The Cult of the Conductor, other than that it's a land of contrasts? It is indeed a land of contrasts, but usually when we say a land of contrasts, we mean it in a very medium way, right? If you When you say a land of contrasts, typically at least for me, that ends up meaning like, well, there's good and there's really, really, really good and really, really, really bad. Here, it's more a land of contrast in the sense that this entire season is incredible, but it is just the tonal shifts. This season of television is like a dog grabbing a chew toy and you're the chew toy you're being shook all around banged against the floor the entire time you're you're going up and you're going down and it's it is a very jarring ride even the bits that are calm and comparatively lighthearted are always paired with something bitter and bilious you know like very just acidic and even the ending ends up reflecting that that bittersweet moment at the end where the apex are poised to change for the better but it's left uncertain 
it's it's a departure from the previous two seasons and it is a really really good exploration of what the infinity train kind of is kind of does to people how a machine you build that runs entirely on math to change human beings can never truly change everyone for the better. You're always going to fuck up when you reduce people to math. Yeah, I love that reinforces that a lot because that that is a thing that was brought. One of the things I loved about season two was bringing forward the like almost coldness of the train and like forwarding. Yeah, one one is a goofy, funny little orb, but also like he is a machine and the the train is a machine and it uses hard math and numbers to represent things and as a result funnily enough for the the empathy machine almost entirely lacks it as a as like a system and in this one we see that simon reflects that he he has become obsessed with numbers because that's the only thing you're given in the train the only context you're given is the number and so if you decide that no, that context is, well, b- the number is your worth and you must make it bigger, there's really no one to tell you that you're wrong, I- especially if you don't have a properly knowledgeable denizen. Uh, you're, you can just head down that path and end up where Simon does, just sort of irrecoverably twisted and evil. Exactly. And that is ultimately the deal with Infinity Train Book 3, a genuinely incredible season of television that is absolutely going to, uh, you know, haunt uh, the nightmares of, of several children uh, who, have, who have watched it. But, you know, Good. Sometimes, sometimes that can be a positive thing. So... This, of course, was entirely made possible by our patrons. You're the ones who voted for us to cover this from la- from our first episode of Talk Cycles, which is, of course, been an Infinity Train book, too. And if you would like to guide our, our future meanders through contemporary animation, you can go to patreon.com slash crystalradioworks, where for only a dollar a month, you get to vote on what we do for this podcast every month. Yes, and not only that, you get access to our entire backlog. Remember that Kipo podcast I was talking about? Well, you could listen to the entire thing start to finish right now if you go and uh, give us $1 for our Heart Survivors tier. Uh, and, you know, if you're interested in perhaps any of our Final Fantasy content, uh, you can go ahead and give us either 3 or $8 per month, uh, and those will unlock for you all of the bonus content we will be doing for Final Fantasy XIV. Um, and at the higher tier, you will also gain access to uh, when we get set up for our Party Finder and Raid Nights, where we'll do uh, server events, things like that inside of the game. Uh, and that'll be extra fun. And of course, one benefit you get at the three and eight dollar tiers is that your name is read in every episode. So thank you to our trusted companions and warriors of crystal, Argyle Funk, Dan Big Challenges Silva, Becky Scott Fairley, Vertigree, Rockadot, Mia Berg, Tobu, Amethyst Gurgis, Sid Vesper. Enrique Robledo Aruncio, 
Trisha Montez, Imogen Q, Aurora Borealis, Sir Sheepsalot, I, Beauregard, Kaylee, Louisa, Garrett Johnson, Emma Lynn, Haley Moreland, Yusuf Gurch, Ashley, Mabel Mabel, Jennifer Jones, Jack O'Neuro, Michael Steinert, and TCO. Thank you very much. Your support means the world to us. It lets us keep doing this stuff. You, you, you've all been great. Um, but that is going to do it for us this month on Talk Cycles. So I have been one of your hosts, Jane. I've been your host, Nero. And don't touch that dial because we'll be surfing the channels again next time.